Welcome to In The Hopper, a real estate, community, and business development show where we discuss future projects coming down the pike in our city. Brought to you by Belgian Development and hosted by yours truly, Akeem Brown, the conductor. On this episode, we go into different territory from our traditional city talk and city development talk, and we go into the world of fintech. Uh, and technology. We've kind of touched on this before on the f- podcast with with IO from Alberta Innovates. And on this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bhuvan Mangi, who is the senior strategist at WorldPay from FIS. He actually works in London right now, but he's an Edmonton local and an Edmonton native. And he touches a little bit on some of the current trends that are happening in the Alberta market. But he is a very, very global mindset and mentality and he's got his hands into a bunch of different things from management consulting to strategy to obviously in fintech. And we had a really great wide ranging conversation. Looking forward for you guys to tune in. And without further ado, please help me welcome Boovin in the Hopper. All right. Welcome to another episode of In the Hopper. Boovin, thank you very much for joining the show today. Thanks for having me, Akeem. Pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's very fascinating uh, what's going on in the world and with you living in London and your global perspective and just your experience in business and many other industries. I'm very excited to chat with you about kind of your purview and what's going on and how you see things. Uh, recently, I read your blog um, about how insurance is being disrupted. Uh, mm-hmm. I, would love, I would like to, if you could tell us a little bit more about that and is this disruption that's happening in insurance may be a sign of things to come with AI more generally or the rest of the world of technology? Absolutely. Um, if, if that's okay, I think I, I can quickly summarize my blog for your listeners uh, who may not sure. have read the blog. And yeah. very, very br- briefly, basically the blog talks about um, what are the top five trends that I think will be happening uh, within the insurance space. So uh, but basically, my current role is uh, I work as a senior strategy manager at a fintech firm. Uh, it's actually the world's largest payments acquiring firm. And I uh, head up the strategy for insurance and some other financial verticals. So I look into insurance globally and, and I like to know what's happening. Uh, and based on the knowledge, I uh, wrote this recent blogs. So some of the trends that I talked about first is insure tech. Insure tech basically means uh, you know, marrying insurance uh, with technology. So disrupting some of the traditional uh, legacy systems or ways of working in the insurance world uh, with uh, help of uh, technology. So first trend I talked about is that we'll be seeing a lot more insure tech firms uh, coming into the insurance space, really disrupting how insurance uh, works, you know, how we, uh, as a policyholder, how we uh, think about our choosing a policy, how we actually select the policy, how we pay our premiums, how we get claims, how long it takes to get our claims paid out. Uh, so that would be the first trend. Uh, and, and second, building on that is really revamping uh, the claims part, so the outbound payments. And now on average, if we think about you know even our, our basic claim, it may take two to three days or sometimes even a couple of weeks to get a claim approved submitted, approved, and then finally paid out. Um, within tech, those claims are getting revamped to, if not instantaneous, in a couple hours. Uh, so that's the second trend that we'll see. Thirdly, uh, wow. as you mentioned, data and AI, You know, we are seeing disruption in pretty much every single business segment of every single industry with AI. Um, within insurance, we'll be using things like telematics box, 
in your car, which essentially records all your driving behaviors um, and really connect uh, your car with the insurer. Uh, so they, if you get an, into an accident, you know, they can, they, they first they're aware and then second, they can really help speed up the claims uh, process. Fourth, uh, cloud migration. Uh, you may have heard uh, or you may have worked with brokers, insurance carriers. Uh, they do use pretty legacy systems. Uh, the, the fourth trend is that there's going to be a massive migration on cloud, which will eventually help speed up the whole uh, insurance process. And then finally, fifth, given what's happening in the world, uh, inflation, uh, you know, is making people a lot more conscious about their spending, including their how much they are paying for their premiums, which will lead the insurance carriers to be more uh, innovative and effective uh, and, and in a way um, just offer more to the policyholders. So those are the kind of the five key trends that I've talked about in my blog in more detail. Now, the question becomes that are those driven by customer service uh, you know or or AI I think that's what you asked um so absolutely yeah for sure uh, you know AI is disrupting uh, pretty much every single industry as I said um and then there's also a lot more personalization happening in every industry that we think about I think uh especially retail industry has set up standards for customers uh you know we we can do click and collect in pretty much every single uh, retail shop now. Uh, we can it really provides an omni-channel experience. Uh, we can move from our cell phone device to the website or to go to the store. Uh, you know, expect to find the same product, the same price. Uh, be educated on the products. What are the different products? What are the different stores selling? So all that has kind of made us uh, as end customers really. Um, norm it has normalized the standard of customer service uh, which is what's also happening in the insurance um, and then ai is kind of helping uh insurance carriers brokers mgas to really deliver that customer centric experience to the policyholders so yes yeah, very fascinating and thank you for summary uh, summarizing that article uh beautifully uh, it sounds like, yeah, customers have more leverage these days because it just sounds like there's a lot more power in their hands to, number one, get information on whatever product or service they're purchasing, who they're going to engage with. They can do like a deep dive on their history, who the company is all about, what they support and yep. whatnot. Uh, and a few takeaways from what you just kind of ran through there uh, is speed. Like speed is the one of your key points, but I think it kind of relates to every item of this. Cloud makes speed faster. Data mm -hmm. uh, and AI makes speed faster. And if you have like uh, like a simple business model is to take any industry in the world and do this product or service in half the time because people yep. care about how fast they get stuff. Uh, that's very fascinating that, uh, you know, you were able to tie that all together when it comes to the industry of insurance um, and then the broader uh, industry you're working with in fintech. Uh, how did the blog, you said you wrote a blog for this. How did this blog kind of yes. come about? What is the nature of the blog? Like kind of oh, like how did you, how'd you get it started? For sure. So it's, um, as I said, I, in my senior strategy role, uh, there's kind of three um, functions that I that I um, work on. So first, it's a strategy bit, which is really looking at, um, you know, what's happening in the in the world of insurance globally. So uh, we we operate in 144 different countries, and and my role, my uh, function as a senior strategy manager, heading up the insurance, is to 
be on top of what's happening in the insurance space in those industries and educate people on the ground in those regions. Mm. Uh, second, I also kind of look at uh, what's happening in terms of the product. What are the customers, the end users in those regions expecting from a fintech industry and how does our product portfolio align with those expectations? So identify any gaps and then work with the product team to close those gaps. And then the third uh, function is helping my go-to-market uh, team uh, you know, be on top of our thought leadership. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is to also uh, share the knowledge that I gained from my from the strategy side in through, you know, LinkedIn posts, uh, blogs, uh, you know, sometimes we hold workshops at different events. So really sharing that knowledge um, about it, it's it's also about educating um, our audience, uh, you know, what's what we think is happening in the insurance world, what we think uh, is happening in the payments world. I've I've wrote a few other blogs on uh, how do you choose a point of sale system for healthcare um, and, and how do you, yeah. So it's really about educating um, anybody who, who wants to interact with world basically. And I mean, if you're sharing, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. The blog is still a great medium for uh, being able to spread out information at mass. Cause if you're dealing with a lot of different companies and countries, uh, exactly. you know, if you have one, if you can share the information once and distribute it that way, that's a lot more kind of maybe efficient than sending everyone a personalized email, which you probably still do. But I mean, leveraging yeah. media is, is a great way to do that. Hopefully we can leverage this, uh, this little uh, episode <laughs> yeah. uh, with regards to the, uh, yeah, the various industries, um, and all the information, you seem like a data machine. Like you just seem like you just get a lot of information from different sources. I was very curious as people like who are working in business, who have to be on top of industry trends and world trends, really, how, mm -hmm. how do you go about processing? And number one, how do you get, how do you go about sourcing that information? And then how do you okay. process it? Sure. Well, as, as you said, you know, there is a lot of information out there. So I'm, I'm actually going to start by saying that, that, yeah, there is a lot of information. Uh, there's probably more information that we can all collectively consume, um, you know, out there. So the question then becomes, how do you source and process the right information? Because right. many, many times we've all been there that we start looking for information without really clarifying what we're looking for. We'll spend a few hours on the internet and there's high chances that you'll spend those hours without really getting a, the, a good result uh, for, you know, what you were looking for. So, um, before you start looking, uh, I like to spend some time on really understanding in my own head that what is what exactly is I'm looking for, write it down, simplify it, quantify it, and then start, uh, you know, sourcing that information. Um, there's probably, there, there's usually like two ways that I like to take uh, for sourcing information and they are secondary and primary research. Uh, so secondary research is basically what we call desktop research. Uh, this is, you know, when, so, You've, you've understood what you're looking for, and then you start with desktop research. That includes you know, looking for published papers, reliable sources, um, websites, companies' websites, understanding you know, uh, the product definition, the services uh, that they offer, uh, understanding the market, and, you know, listening to podcasts such as yours. Uh, so really building a foundation of uh, that kind of space that you're, you're exploring, right? The second step is really hypothesizing that does the information that I that I've recently gained, does that answer the question that I was really looking for? Mm -hmm. uh, 
this step is usually not enough though. Uh, so it will give you a foundation. It will give you enough information to uh, build an opinion. But the second step, which is the primary research, is uh, is talking to real people, direct information, interviewing. So uh, we work with you know a lot of uh, companies that provide access to a database of experts, of SMEs, subject matter experts. Um, a colleague of mine actually was building uh, a trading, a retail CFD trading strategy for our uh, clients in Japan. And she didn't have previous background in that uh, market. So we worked with a company called GLG. She scheduled an interview, an hour interview with an expert who who is an expert in retail trading strategy in Japan. So you spend an hour with that wow. person, you really, th there's two points, you you validate the hypothesis that you had built from your secondary research, and then you, you know, uh, really learn from their experience, that subject matter ex uh, experience. Surely you pay a lot of money, but like that's really the, you know, uh, Bloomberg's business is all about like sharing information. So uh, that's how you go about sourcing information. And I can think of another, project that I, I led. So this is during my MBA. I was building uh, a market entry strategy for uh, world's first portable neonatal incubator. Uh, wow. Basically, what that means is that if you go to a neonatal ward in a hospital, uh, this is where uh, when, when a baby is prematurely born, they need to be kept in an incubator. Uh, the problem there is those incubators are uh, a fixed machine. So in, mm -hmm. in, in case there is an evacuation in, in the hospital, there is no way for a hospital staff to uh, easily evacuate that uh, prematurely born baby. No way. So this company came up with an idea of building world's first portable incubator, and I was working on uh, um, building a product launch strategy for that. So I had done my desktop research, validated that this is what we need, and then I found a database of uh, pediatric uh, doctors in US, mm -hmm. uh, emailed about 50 of them, interviewed about 15 of them. And wow. during yeah. those interviews, it act I found out that the hypothesis that I had built was wrong. Uh, so, you know, kind of went again, rebuilt the strategy, validated with those experts, and then we went about it. So that's really how I source information. Um, and in terms of processing, I think when you're a lot of the times when you're looking for information, it comes in big chunks. Uh, for example, data, you know, every, every time I, I've got a data download from from a different source is usually in a big chunk. So I love to use Excel, Power BI to, you know, create charts, create visualizations to really extract those insights. Um, uh, but yeah, that's how I like to process it. Benchmarking is another key thing to do Benchmarking, uh, because yeah. Well, let's say when you've sourced information and, and you've come up with it with, with a number, you don't really know whether the number is good or bad. So mm -hmm. benchmarking becomes really important to really test that. Is this number that I'm looking at? Uh, how does it compare to our internal st uh, standards, other KPIs, things like that? So, so benchmarks are like industry standards, I guess, or it, it could be industry standards. It could be your internal company standards. For example, if I'm looking at, you know, a, a, a total addressable market for to uh, for a project and I've I've, you know, based on my research, both secondary and primary, I found out that, hey, this if I invest money in this, it will uh, based on this research, it will give me a 15 percent return. 
is that a good is that a bad you know right. then you start benchmarking that what are other kind of portfolios giving me uh, a return what what is our internal um irr uh, or mm. things like that so you, you benchmarking becomes very important I love that. I'm taking a tremendous amount of value from this, uh, Boofin. This is awesome. Uh, the the when you broke it down, secondary, primary, and then benchmarking. I think yeah. most people just do secondary these days. Um, and depending yes. on what their drop function is, like if it's just yeah. kind of like the casual person, like the person at home who just wants to know what's happening and uh, you know pick the industry of the day, they're gonna do a quick Google search. They're gonna go on ChatGPT. They might look at the, the yeah. you know the the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, get the headline, and then move on. But it sounds like you're going into like the nitty gritty of the information. I like what you said there about primary research. Reminds me of my school days when we were doing the bibliographies and you're trying to yep. go on the streets and get information. It's like it gets you like the real. It reminds me of a story of Jack Welch, actually, the founder of GE. He used mm -hmm. to um, get new product ideas by talking to his executive first. So that was kind of his form of secondary research. Yep. And then he would actually go to the product for the manufacturing floors and talk to the okay. people on the on the product line who are like, you know, making the widgets and stuff and ask for their feedback. Executives and the people on the manufacturing line were like completely night and day. And yeah. somewhere between somewhere between those two functions, he found the new products that the GE would make. Yeah. But it was just like doing on the ground research, which is hard work. Like who wants to go down and talk to 100 workers on the factory line, right? Exactly, exactly right. But th this is also where, you know, we talk about confirmation bias or groupthink. Uh, things like that are particularly true when you're talking to like one set of groups. So if you're talking to executives, uh, especially in a group meeting, um, there's there could be that hey the the general vibe in that room is is X, and a lot of the answers would finally collude to validate that X is correct. And then when you move to a different part of the business, different room, um, there might be another group thing. So it's really like being aware that those could be true, uh, you know, in, while yes. you're doing your primary research. Uh, and when you're doing a secondary research, I think it's definitely true because a lot of the times when we start to research, we have a, like a, a pre-notion about what we're looking for. And then a lot of the times, instead of researching, we are really validating what we already believe. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. that is exactly what gets challenged when we're having a conversation with an expert in that in that area right yeah so that's why it's, i think both are very very important 100 percent uh when yeah. it comes to the the latest research and processing and benchmarking you've been doing lately uh there's a lot of uh, trends happening in the world macroeconomically uh, microeconomically you said you're in 40 144 countries doing different kind of strategies for different kind of companies within the fintech industry uh, yeah. what are some like different trends you've noticed that are like maybe impacting the global stage uh, that are exciting or interesting that you've noticed in doing your research um, I know that in 2020 was like the, the global supply chain was kind of the biggest one uh, what, okay. what are a few what are a few maybe that you've noticed in 2023 2022 that are of interest that could be uh, fascinating for people out there to maybe sure think about? Um, I'm actually gonna build on what we talked about the customer centricity in the in the you know the first uh, earlier in this podcast so but before we do that, let's kind of revamp. Uh, let's look at what really happened during COVID, during pandemic that led to the supply chain issues, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened during COVID that borders were shut, 
uh, raw material either wasn't getting produced or if it was getting produced, it wasn't really getting to, uh, you know, the, the end businesses that needed it. So, uh, which eventually led to uh, the whole uh, supply chain crisis. And what's happening, and again, this is just my opinion. And right. So yeah. what I think is happening right now is we currently have a pretty big economic instability. Uh, I, I do think uh, our economy is a bit chaotic right now. So, you know, inflation rates are ridiculously high. Energy prices have gone off the charts. Uh, banks are closing down. We, we had never heard that. Uh, stock market is going crazy. It's extremely volatile. Bond prices, which is, you know, considered a very safe asset. Uh, bond prices have fell like 60% after Credit Suisse takeover. So given the, all those, I think that there's a global economy, you know, chaos right now. And whereas back in the day, uh, these things weren't like reached to, it weren't reaching the average consumer, uh, given that how connected we are to the internet or, you know, give, even given social media, a lot of people know that there's something happening. They may not know why or what exactly is happening, but they know that something is happening, which yeah, is exactly what exactly. led to SVB run, right? Like a lot of people had an idea that, hey, take your deposits out, something is happening. They lined up, which kind of led the, the bank to close down. So why I say that is customers have become really, really aware. Uh, they're, they're, they've become very conscious about their spending, uh, given the whole instability. And from a business perspective, the supply chains are fixed. You know, they are producing, their marketing is fixed. Uh, but I think businesses will, will have a great challenge in selling the product. Uh, so the, right. the, the very last step, which is the sales. Um, but I think there's a solution to it. So, and the, the solution is for businesses to really be innovative and effective. Um, and I don't mean like go invent new products, but be innovative in, um, you know, how you reach your customer how you build a, a brand name, how you build a trust, uh, how you build on that customer service uh, again. Uh, basically, how you extract little value from, from your uh, whole business chain and how you pass that value to your end customer. So it could be that when you've got, you know, 10 different vendors uh, feeding into your um, to supply chain or, or your whole business process, how you negotiate with those build a higher you know negotiating power extract some value and maybe spend that value in either you know rebranding your marketing strategy or passing that uh, inventive uh, incentive in terms of like rewards or cost savings to the end customer so that they are more likely to buy your product and once they've bought your product kind of reinventing you know how you uh, keep them engaged. How you how you like you know the churn rate is very very low. So yeah, yeah. no the the life cycle of the product and the life cycle of the customer is in focus right now. And like you yeah. said, um, in business, um, I've come to understand, and maybe I'm missing a, a leg here on the three legged stool, but I've come to understand business is like product marketing and sales. Sales mm -hmm. being the last one, and people, if the products that do the best or the companies that do the best have a, gr a great product, and that's where they focus 90% of their time, then yep. they spend maybe five to 10% uh, marketing it, telling the world about it. And then the yep. selling part is, you know, when they're actually in the store buying it, maybe there's a, you know, a thing or 
to here they need to be convinced on that's kind of like sales and i've yep. i've always seen that like as soon as this inflation thing started happening the cost of money started become more expensive consumer debt is more expensive people are, <laughs> are less has it you know if you have a if in 2020 if the interest rate was 18 percent, now it's 23 or 24 percent on a, on a credit card all of a sudden Absolutely. you're a little bit more gun shy so that product yep. and that marketing better be tight like you're saying or else yep. you know that uh cost elasticity for all the economic students out there is going to be yep. very very inelastic when it comes to these price things right i'm not going to buy a 15 cheeseburger anymore <laughs> you know it, it better exactly. be the best cheeseburger in the yeah. world um i'll go to mcdonald's instead but it's very but, but I think like you know even like when you're like when you're talking about Station Park and and your other developments, um, sure it, it doesn't really end at you know closing a deal with somebody who wants to rent a space. Right. Uh, it it goes way beyond that now because the the, the end users, so people renting from you guys, they are a lot more aware of what their options are, a lot more aware of what they actually need, and and they're a lot more aware of um, how they want to spend their money. So, and it's really like working together with them in, in exactly offering them, you know, a, what they need to build for their end customers. And that's exactly what I mean that when you extract the value, uh, you know, maybe you, uh, be innovative in negotiating with your, uh, suppliers, with your developers, mm -hmm. and then pass that, um, value to your renters. Yes. So exactly. Right. Uh, and, and I think I've seen you guys do that. Um, yeah, we try to, yeah, we try to be efficient with the, the builds and the construction and I mean, it's hitting every industry, but like material costs used to be sky high. They've kind of stabilized, but yeah, you're yeah. right. If we can find any kind of savings, uh, within, uh, the building process, the development process, we'll pass that savings and that value on to the end user and to the, and to the, to the tenant by way of lower rents and, off costs and property taxes and all those kinds yep. of things like those all are realized in the um at the end user level so that they can actually go ahead hire more people invest more into marketing it's like a downstream ball like it's a downstream effect um yep. i'm very curious within fintech like you've mentioned mm -hmm. fintech and uh yep. as a as an industry more broadly can you maybe describe like maybe what the industry is uh like more kind of broadly, like as far as like, what is it, how to start? What does it serve? What is its main mechanism, I guess? And then I guess there's different uh, applications within the industry, sure. but can you maybe give a, like a 30,000 foot view of what FinTech is? Sure. So, and uh, well, FinTech, it stands for financial technology and, yep. and, and basically, it's, you know, marrying financial services with technology. Uh, actually, it, better better way to put it would be disrupting uh the traditional financial services industry which is decades old uh with technology um and i guess the, the best way for me to explain what a fintech is is through some use cases uh, through some examples uh let's first one let's look at mobile banking uh, okay. you know just a few years ago and um, we if we wanted to make any interact with our bank we would have to go to the bank Right. Uh, then came the websites, which would allow us to do most things, but not all. Uh, and now today's world, uh, especially in more uh, financially advanced countries um, or, or cities such as London, uh, pretty much you can do everything that your bank would offer from your cell phone without ever going to the bank. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, disrupting how a, a, a typical bank worked a few years ago by using technology through your cell phone 
and and really giving that power to the end customer to basically use that service. Okay. Um. Uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's that's very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, does does the uh, does the banking industry now, like from a real estate perspective, change? Like, uh, do they need as many uh, brick and mortar stores? Well, uh, so it has changing. Uh, yeah. uh, I think HSBC was one of the first ones to go. Uh, so there's a branch that has nobody. Uh, it's 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 a it's not an ATM uh, location. It's a branch uh, with a bit more advanced uh, machines that can do a few more functions than an ATM. Uh, okay. But yeah, so if you absolutely have to go to the branch, then there's also that one option, you know, before you go to a full branch, uh, let's say if you need to apply for a mortgage or something, which you can also do on, on your cell phone now. But really? some other example, yeah, wow. absolutely. So, you know, that, that that's truly how disruptive uh, the technology can be. But even if you look at uh, trading, uh, which is another big use case when it comes to fintech. I remember when I got into trading, which is like about about you know 2012, 2013. Um, I, I so I, I used to bank with TD at that time, so I had a TD Waterhouse account. It, it wasn't really, it didn't really give me many options to trade. Um, there's a, a lot of options in a lot of banks in Canada still do not give you an option to short trades. Uh, so there's, okay. you know, you, you can do right. a long position or a short position. Uh, like TD just did with in Canada. TD just uh, shorted the, yeah. But but like for retail customers, it still don't oh, give okay. you, it still doesn't give you an option to short, uh, you know, uh, uh, like uh, ETFs or or uh, stocks. Right. However, the trading platforms, uh, Robinhood, eToro, Trading212 uh, that we use uh, now, they you can you can do you can trade 24 hours uh you can trade uh you can long a a, a stock a short a stock you can trade bond prices you can trade contracts wow. you can trade future derivatives uh commodity trading so all that is now at you know at tip of your finger uh, fingers so literally that is disrupting uh how trading used to be by integrating technology into it uh, that's a big use case for fintech um, um another uh, uh well look, i've kept the last for uh, best for the last so we as a fintech firm we all there's plenty of products that we offer but one of the products that my, my favorite is is something called fraud site so it's a it's a machine learning uh tool mm -hmm. uh designed to identify and decline any fraudulent transaction okay. so how it works is at uh, first we are world's largest payments acquiring firm in the world so we wow. process about 40 billion transactions a year so we we have a lot of data uh when it comes to you know financial payments uh how basically fraud site works is uh if you if you're a business and then you have chosen to opt for a fraud site if anybody uses a card at your business uh we a, that transaction will go through a data layer what that does is basically connects that transaction, that tap of the card with all the information such as, you know, your device data, your card data, your biometrics, your behavior insights, how you spend, uh, how you have been spending in the last year, uh, your location it connects with all that data. And based on all that information, it, it uh, goes to a decision making layer, which either approves the transaction declines a transaction or puts it on hold for further review. Wow. 
this all happens within a second. That's so impressive. It's literally when you tap your card and it, it will either say approve, decline, or you know, it wouldn't go through and then it, it will be on hold. So that is literally a, a prime example of how technology can like disrupt a financial uh, industry. And that's exactly what fintech is. And would it that's a, that's an amazing use case and uh, explanation for the industry uh, with that machine learning um, and that layer it goes through. Is it just testing that purchase against all your previous purchases? So if yes. there's like a pattern that doesn't recognize, like, let's say you'd never been to X store uh, and then all of a sudden you're buying something there. The it, it, it recognizes as an anomaly that's outside the cluster of data that it's used to it looking at. Exactly. So there's there's a few different kind of tiers of you know factors that are customizable. Uh, so you as a business can like define those ca categories. Uh, but the first one, like the very basic ones, would be that yes, you know you've been using this card for last five years. You have never made a purchase outside um, Edmonton, for example, and mm -hmm. you haven't used this card to purchase an airline's ticket. So you, if this is your card. Uh, you haven't really purchased anything to go outside Edmonton. Um, and now all of a sudden you have a transaction going in Poland for a very unusual amount. Oh, okay. uh, it, will, it will detect that. But even, uh, you know, it can go into even deeper, which would be how have you sourced your money? So let's say you have, uh, you know, you have a regular salary coming in uh, into your account. And all of a sudden there's like, a ten thousand um, dollars deposit in your account from a source that cannot be traced. That means that hey, there could be uh, some anti-money laundering, uh, something happening with your account. So it may also trigger a red flag. It may not de decline your transaction. It may approve it, but it may still put a red flag, uh, which then uh, escalates to a further review into your account. Uh, basically, looking into how have you sourced the money. So. Uh it goes okay. a lot deeper than yeah. So this uh, this product within fintech with uh, the fraud and catching fraud, this seems like it's in the, kind of on the new horizon. It's kind of catching steam in the recent uh, months. Um, is there anything else uh, that might be kind of on the horizon for fintech when it comes to like a segment it could assist with? Like we've already yeah. talked about sending money, simple transactions. We've talked about trading and mortgages. Now fraud, I know sports betting yep. is in the fray. Is there another yeah. segment or another area that could be like this, that, that could be, maybe you don't have to tease it if it's, no. in, if it's in the secret sauce, but maybe like uh, anything well, else? So what's happening, uh, money transfers is sh short answer. Uh, so money transfers. basically what's happening in the world is, you know, after COVID and, uh, you know, work from home became, became a thing, but there, there's been a lot more movement in the world, physical movement. People are moving to different places. And what that movement, the byproduct of that movement is that people still need to send money uh, either, you know, to their home or, or they're relocating to countries. So they, they want to move the money with them or just send the money to uh, friends and family. And just a few years ago, you know, using Western Union and MoneyGram, things like that, they, we didn't really have many options to uh, choose the rate that we want to send the money to. Uh, how quickly that money has is transferred. Now that is being revamped. So um, a lot of the banks will you will you'll see you'll see integration into like your bank account 
uh, with Western Union, uh, you know, TransferWise, which is Wise, Revolut, Monzo, all these challenger banks are will will be giving you the option to choose your uh, uh, FX rate, how quickly you want to the money to be sent, uh, and just you know, and have it on your phone without having to go anywhere. So that is a, another fintech trend that you'll see, you know, revamping the money transfers industry this year and the next year. Okay. And that goes back again to speed, like we were talking about earlier. Speed like, and customer service, right? Uh, so if a, if I can send the money uh, from my couch versus having to go to uh, uh, Western Union, I may pay a dollar more uh, for that service. And, and similarly, if I send the money and if the receiver receives the money instantaneously, I may even spend $2 more than if it's going to take three days. Absolutely. Yeah, you'll pay yeah. for speed. I mean, I think Amazon proved that with their their exactly. Prime, Amazon Prime. Like, I mean, that's, yeah. he kind of changed the game with that one. Um, when it comes to like your business, I, the business strategy part of like yeah. what you do every day, how do you, without giving too much away, I guess, how do you develop strategy? Because it sounds like you have your information, you benchmark it, you're able to, how do you kind of tailor uh, an approach for a company um, understanding that they might be in a different like segment industry country. Like, do you have like mm -hmm. a template? Do you have like a, do you have like a, well, like how, how do you kind of go about this? It's very fascinating to me because, you know, I know a lot of people, they work kind of in this, they work with customers in their immediate city or their immediate, maybe yeah. in the country. And if they're a big conglomerate, maybe internationally, but it's not obvious to me how that strategy is implemented. Do you know what I mean? So it sounds like you have a yeah. process for that. Oh, it, it, I'm going to say it's a pretty loaded question. We, we could do a whole podcast on just, <laughs> you know, how you build yeah. a strategy. But th that's because there's many different frameworks to how you build a strategy. And and each strategy is going to be different, right? Like it, it, we, we tend to just call you strategy as a very generic word, but like it's just an um, umbrella term. And there, within that, there could be, you know, uh, a market entry strategy, a product launch strategy, a business improvement, operation excellence. There's endless types of strategy, and each type of strategy would have a different type of framework of of you know what you would use to develop that. But if we were to look at a very like a bird's uh, eye view, very generic, uh, how do you build a strategy to win? Uh, there's there's key steps that I can kind of summarize. Okay. So so, so first, you'd always start with you know, defining your goal, like what exactly is it that you need the strategy for? And, and that needs to be a bit more, they're, they're a lot more specific and measurable and quantified, you know, that I want to increase the sales of my X product by 15% in five months. Let's build a strategy to do that. So okay. it's a lot more specific. So the first thing is you, is you define your goal. Um, second thing you, you do is you start to look internally. So what, what I mean is that you start to evaluate what are your strengths, what are your gaps, uh, you know, in terms of your product proposition, service proposition, uh, what skills do you need to meet that goal? Um, and what is your differentiation factor? What is your USB? Uh, so you put that down. The, the third step you do is do the same thing, but externally. So you start to look at what are your customers doing? What are the customers wanting to have? Like you're you're saying that I want to increase the sales of X product uh, by 15%. You want to make sure that there's a 15% more demand 
you know, that will meet that that increase in, in, in your sales. So you also want to understand what are your competitors doing? Who are your competitors? What are their market shares? What's their strategy look like? And also, what is the industry doing? So you you kind of build that whole analysis. And then the fourth step is actually when you start to develop a, a, a roadmap. And so based on your goal, based on the, all the analysis that you have done, uh, you should have a fa enough foundation to start putting things on paper that, hey, this is the roadmap for next five months. Um, and then you, you be very specific. So you define milestones, KPIs, which are key performance indicators at regular intervals throughout that roadmap that, okay, this is the five month overview, but at month end of one, month one, this is what we need to achieve. Month two, this is what we need to achieve, uh, so on. You also define governance practices because, uh, you know, you, you need to really define how will that plan be managed? Who's gonna manage it? There's something called RACI matrix, which basically means, um, so R-A-C-I, means that who will be responsible, who will take the action, who will be consulted, and who will be informed for each of the milestones. So you basically leave no, uh, you try to leave no room for more like error, right? Then you identify uh, based on what you had identified initially that these are the skills that we currently have. Then you identify these are the skills that we need to uh, implement this. And then you fill those gaps by either bringing an external consultant or coaching your teams or your executive team, people on the ground to really, you know, uh, to, like execute on that strategy. And then the final is, uh, is that execute and monitor. What that means is that as you're executing, as I said, month one, you had certain milestones, month two, you had certain milestones. You make sure that you check them off at end of each month. And then the ones that you didn't, you circle back, you kind of revisit the strategy. Was it that was that a good idea? Was there any you know things that you needed to change? Because if you do that, if you wait till end of five months and then revisit, it, it you have wasted too many resources, too much money for something that may not work at all. Um, so 50%, I would say, if not more, of building a strategy is executing and feedback. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Taking in feedback in real time and make the, making the adjustments. But I love that lately, that layout. I was taking a ton of yeah. notes here and I'm glad this is being recorded so we can, uh, I can go back <laughs> to it and listen one more time. But, uh, no, this is, uh, that's fantastic. It sounds like it's very, it's individual. It's, it's individualized based on the company, the context, the scenario. So, but absolutely. like, it sounds like you do have, obviously you have an amazing process to kind of filter through each objective. And like you said, you have to start with the goal in mind. Um, yep. And then the more granular you can get with the numbers, uh, you know, one of the old things I used to read was uh, this guy named Peter Drucker. He's an American business kind of consultant yep. guy. He had this thing where it's like what gets measured gets managed. And I think yep. that that's that's essentially in a nutshell what you just laid out, like measure everything you do. And uh, then you can kind of make it a mathematical thing uh, to get into yeah, the exactly. customer. You can almost yeah. like predict it. And that's the yep. most amazing thing in business. If yep. you can predict the sale, like, you yeah, know. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. So yeah, I was. I, I can quickly use an example. So I was uh, building a production improvement strategy for uh, an oil and gas company in Oman in Middle East, and we had three months to really revamp their production uh, by about twelve percent. And so I think they were they were going from like thirty five hundred to uh, 
somewhere close to like 3,800 barrels a day. And wow. so w- what I had done is built them something called integrated activity planning, which basically takes uh, into account that, hey, these are the things that you you need to do uh, operationally in three months. Um, and then I, I would break that down. Well, actually, I, I, so I started with two-year overall strategy. This is what, mm-hmm. what needs to be done in two years. This is what needs to be done in one year. This is what needs to be done in six months, right. a month, a week. And then uh, we did uh, YTT, which is yesterday, today, tomorrow. Wow. And then what I did is I built a compliance scorecard. What that meant was that you had uh, somebody who's accountable for making sure that these are the activities that were identified to be done uh, this week. And then end of the week, you go on the compliance scorecard and then you see what was done. Um, Started uh, giving that a score and then they had to uh, present that score to the executive team. What that did is they that thing really made everybody in the process accountable for their actions. Yeah. When I started this project and, and the first time I implemented the scorecard, the compliance scorecard, I think the uh, compliance rate was like 10%. 10% of the activities that were planned was actually getting done. And by the end of three months, we brought that up to like 75%. And wow. that's exactly how you know we increased the production by not bringing any more resources, not bringing any more assets, but just making sure that people were uh, held more accountable. And, and people enjoy that as well sometimes, you know? Totally. It's almost like a gamification yeah. of things. Like you're making, you're, you're almost making it into a game, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, where you've talked a lot about the financial industry and kind of where you're at in terms of London, city of London. Yeah. It's like the financial center of the world. Can you talk a little bit about like, your thought process of coming to London, what your experience has been out there so far, and just kind of generally what is what about London kind of lends itself to finance and uh, what makes it such a hotbed for that? Sure. So I moved to London well, to do my MBA uh, to Cambridge, which is an hour north of London. And then I've been Cambridge. living in London. Uh, oh. So, yes. So I moved to the city of Cambridge, uh, lived there for a year, completed my MBA in strategy. And then moved to Brussels, actually, Brussels, Belgium, for my internship where I worked for the European Commission. And I was contemplating living in Brussels, but then a phenomenal job opportunity came in London and then I moved back to London. Amazing. Um, London is, I think, you know, just in terms of the sheer number of companies that are involved in the financial cycle. They don't even yeah. have to be a financial services company, but they're part of the financial cycle. They could be a tech company, they could be a product-based company, insurance, banking, uh, lending, wealth and asset management, just a sheer number of companies that are present at you know your walking distance is, I think, just adds to the whole ecosystem. And yeah. it, you know, it, it being a hub, it, it's like, why is Silicon Valley so big for tech? It's just because the sheer right. number of players that are present in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. I think London is very, uh, the time zone for London is very advantage, advantage uh, big advantage for, for London, because when it comes to you know uh, markets, you really can leverage what happened in the North America the day before and what hap- what's happening in the APAC region when you, when you start your day. And then based on those learnings, you can really, you know, drive what's going to happen tomorrow based on your decisions of today. So I think geographically, it's it's very 
dominant location uh, where, where London is situated at. Mm-hmm. Um, and just I think that the sheer amount of wealth that travels through London, um, London is a very strategic location for a lot of the businesses to be located at, to be headquartered at, uh, just because, again, comes back to the sheer number of companies present. So if, you know, it's it's a very strategic location for a big organization to to be at. So those are the is things it, that I mean. Yeah. Is it a fun city to do lunch and learns or to go out for, for drinks oh. and food and stuff like that? Or, you know, I've traveled quite a bit and, and London is phenomenally fun and definitely a lot of networking opportunities. Everybody, the, the culture is uh, about going out and really enjoying your day to day. And, you know, even when you come to office, most people are back into office at least three days a week now. Um, and it just part of the culture is to go out after uh, where you and, you know, have a couple of pints and connect with your colleagues, connect with wider uh, colleagues of yours, uh, other people. The, the caliber of the conversation, I think, is pretty high. And in my experience, and just there's way too many options. I think <laughs> I've been living here for almost five years now, and I've probably only done like 10, 15 percent of uh, what London has to offer. And even though wow. I'm a pretty outgoing person. So, wow, that says a lot. So you you could be there for 30, 30 years, 40 years and not not even, you know, that's awesome. Exactly. <laughs> I've been there once and I was only there for two days. So I definitely have to come back and check out. Uh, I was in Soho, so I'd have to check out the rest yeah. of the town. Uh, but yeah. uh, beautiful town for, like you said, networking, uh, being out there, meeting people from different fields, um, yeah. opportunities abound. Uh, so, no, that's amazing. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the world, we've talked about a lot of things today. Um, we've talked about kind of industry trends, fintech, what's happening in the world with uh, different market forces. What do you see as the fastest growing industry outside of maybe okay. AI um, in the world? Because AI is kind of low hanging fruit right now. I think yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like it's like the kind of monster of the week. Uh, it's like yeah. that kind of thing. What is the kind of like maybe this, a better question is what is the dark horse industry that you see or or product or a service that is going to come out of nowhere if you had to sure. kind of yeah well so i'm not going to talk about ai but i do want to mention one thing that uh, not sure if you've heard uh nvidia uh came out uh, this weekend actually so they uh, nvidia built you know hardware computer hardware uh okay. processors and they have come out and said that they will be their heart Sorry, they will be supporting AI and the development of AI through computer hardware. So they're uh, they'll be building the computer hardware to support AI and all different apps and tools. Because yeah. if, if the more processing power it needs to, you know, implement AI into your business functions, you need certain hardware to support that. That will be a game changing as well. Uh, Interesting. So, uh, yes. Uh, but so the hardware have- to support AI. The hardware to hardware support to support AI, which is which is one kind of missing link because the the speed that it's it's really getting adapted uh, into businesses into every single industry. Uh, very soon we will actually run out of the quantum power to run AI tools. So the missing link was the hardware bit, and then right. now Nvidia has came out this weekend and 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 announced that they. I actually launched a couple of products and then they will be uh, launching a, f- a lot more products in terms of hardware to support AI. So that's going to take a uh, big time. And yep. in, in terms of other 
so fintech will definitely be one. We talked about money transfers, but also let's a uh, an industry that is isn't well heard of called regtech. It's like regulatory regtech. technology. Okay. And why I say that is there's a lot of crazy things happening in the world, you know, uh, given the whole instability, uh, economic instability, volatility. Um, and there's a lot of crazy things happening in fintech and financial services industry is one of the most heavily regulated industries. Mm -hmm. But given that, you know, technology is really reducing the time that it takes from an idea to like, uh, you know, reaching end, end customers, uh, regulate, making sure that your product and your services are compliant to the regulatory standards is one thing that's preventing speed, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen is that there's going to be uh, technologies that will embed regulatory frameworks into the fintech world. So, huh. for example, let's say you're issuing, uh, and this, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, this is a hypothetical example. So let's say you are trying to reduce the time it takes for you to get a mortgage approved. Uh, right. Let's say we have, uh, you know, taken that down from like a week to 30 minutes, uh, given the, the you know, wow. what technology can do. Unbelievable. But there's a lot of legal and compliance and regulations that, that needs to be validated and verified for a mortgage. What would RegTech do is take all those frameworks, digitize them, embed them into a mortgage, uh, you know, um, process so that when you've selected the rate, you've, you've gotten approval, and then it will instantaneously over the cloud check against all those legal compliance and regulatory mm. frameworks, and then give you approve or decline uh, process, uh, like result. Wow. within 30 minutes so that's uh, that's what i envision what's going to happen within the you know tech world um e even with ai like you know there's no there's nothing regulating the responses right now so uh sure there's a disclaimer that hey you know um it, it's it's in a pre-training beta stage but that is where the regulation the digitalized embedded mm -hmm. regulatory frameworks would come in so that's what i think is very unheard uh, uh, kind of understated uh, trend that will pick up in the next couple of years. Very fascinating. Yes, I think that anything that comes, uh, the biggest innovations sometimes are the ones that come to service the the new announcements or the big, new big industries. Yep. Like if you yep. think about the oil rush in the 19, 1840s, it, the the companies that are still around are the ones that service the oil rush, like the yep. Levi's pants and stuff like that. So yep. these, are, these are kind of like the Levi's pants of these new industries, reg tech for fintech. Uh, yep. You know, prompt engineering for AI, NVIDIA for AI, like these yep. are kind of like servicing the bigger technology at of the day with these kind of cool new um, innovations that are going to help speed things up, protect consumers, um, uh, really expedite um, a lot of processes that were maybe maybe a little bit more antiquated. Like you said, getting a mortgage for good reason is a little bit slower because you have to check your credit yeah. score, you have to do all these things, you have to, there's a lot of and I know there's products out there like LegalZoom who can kind of expedite things sometimes. But yeah, like, I mean, there is a lot of interesting kind of industries coming on top of these ones that are yeah. built on top of the layer that is existing. So that's very fascinating. I didn't know about RegTech. I didn't know about NVIDIA. And 
uh, that's and I like to think I know a lot of things, but I haven't been doing enough primary research, obviously. So I got to get more boots on the ground, get out there more. So that's uh, no, that's very fascinating. Reg reg tech. I imagine that there's going to be some more reg tech in traditional banks to kind of prevent Absolutely. what just happened yeah. with SBB and those things. Yeah. So so for example, you know, if so, but how banks make money, I think everybody knows that now, especially the banks make money by kind of investing the money that you deposit in those banks. But now think about if, if there were like regulatory checks that were embedded into the system that when a bank is making a, a, a position, taking a position uh, either long or short, those yeah. frameworks embedded into the systems are giving you a warning that, hey, you, you do not do that. Or, or go ahead and do that. Mm. So now that then it also becomes, and then we, we can even go uh, a step further that a bank would have to like be held liable that, hey, your regulatory trigger went off before you close this position. And if you still took that position, you would be liable. So now right. there, there's, there's a little bit more onus on the banks to close their positions and it, it almost automates and enforces that they have to think about the end end person and end, end user before they do any transactions. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like it's almost like what the SDIC was supposed to be doing, right? Yes. Um, in the United States, with like just exactly. kind of regulation, because yeah. there is regulatory functions, but they're not tech enabled. They're kind of human. They're prone to human exactly. error and human exactly. biases. And these banks build relationships with these officers at the FDIC. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming, right? But yeah, yeah. Um, then it's prone to human error, and then there could yeah. be uh, run on the banks. But uh, uh, hopefully, what, and this is this is one of the trends that I think. And I, I like to see it boom and, and be more integrated, but hopefully it'll happen in next couple of years. Yeah, I like that prediction a lot. I think that's yeah. uh, I think that's a good one. Um, and given your space in the industry, uh, I I would not be surprised if it came true. So uh, <laughs> with, I'd like to know kind of uh, this is in the Hopper podcast and, you know, a lot of the shows are talking from an Edmonton perspective. But I think with your position being a former Edmontonian now working in London, working in the financial financial industry, uh, we can kind of tie things back into Edmonton, but a lot of the every episode I ask the guest, um, you know, what they have kind of coming down the pike that could be of interest. It could be a new blog article because I know you write the blogs. Mm -hmm. it could be uh, a new new movement in the industry. But what is coming down the pike? Because in the hopper means things coming soon. So is there anything that you can kind of preview for the audience out there that might be of interest, or maybe a blog that's upcoming soon, or anything you have kind of in the works? Um, that you so could tease us. Can't, can't, can't share much, but we are building and we're, we're entering the space of Web3 Metaverse. Uh, okay. So how do you facilitate and protect payments in the Metaverse space? Uh, you know, a lot of the Metaverse space right now is all about interaction. Uh, but how do you take that step further and really, really take things virtually and maybe even facilitate crypto payments? Okay. Uh, or NFT payments in metaverse space. Uh, so fascinating. Stay, no, that's stay, stay tuned. Uh, can't share much, but that's nope. that's in the product. Yeah, that's a, that's enough of a, that's enough of a teaser. That's very fascinating. Um, the yeah, the metaverse fungible tokens. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, I used to do it all the time when I was playing like uh, Farmville or anything yeah, like yeah. that. You know, you spend money on there and 
that's no I, my brain's going crazy now yeah. so that's uh that's that's very exciting uh, yeah but <laughs> um, even social commerce i think has picked up and and will continue picking up i, th I think the prediction is like over 50 billion dollars will be spent in terms of e-commerce on social commerce so what that means is let's say if you're if you go on instagram um it will it, it's about revamping right so it, it will let's say you see a picture of a person um uh, posted by a, a retail store and that person is wearing certain clothes and then you like those certain clothes you will be able to tap on that picture and that that tap will not only take you to that store's website but will also add all those clothes in your cart wow so that all you have left is just check out and select your size and check out and that's it so that's you know so think about like you taking you looking at the picture then you're going to the store you're finding uh, clothes finding what, what it's called, what the product is called, and then, you know, selecting the size. So that's like seven, eight steps. Now we've taken that from seven, eight steps to like two steps wow. and speed and customer service back again, right? Back um, again. So, I mean, that's one of the, that's like Newton's third law. It seems like these days in business, but uh, yeah. no, that makes me think. Cause like, there's a lot of Instagram influencers, let's say, or people online who I'm like, Oh, I love that shirt they're wearing or that jacket. And then I have to take a picture, put it into Google Images, and then yeah. cross references yeah. shows me the company that makes it. If there was like a way, a, a function on the phone where I could just swipe it yeah. or something, and yeah. then it took me to an inbox with all the clothes right there, boom, in my yeah. size. Holy, that'd be super cool. But uh, and coming very soon, actually. <laughs> okay, <laughs> perfect. Even better. Uh, yeah. Holy smokes! Uh, I wanted to tie this thing up with. Uh, just traveling i think you've okay. uh, been around the world you mentioned uh you did your mba in cambridge and then you went to brussels uh i know you've been to india can you talk a little bit about the places you travel around the world that kind of stood out to you or some of your sure. favorite travels yeah so i've traveled i'd say decent amount done about 20 25 countries by now uh the Recently, I my last trip was to India, which was after uh, a long time. Uh, but cool. in the summer, we we did uh, Venice, Vienna, uh, oh, went wow. to Croatia. Actually, my my the, the coolest place I've been to. Uh, maybe I'll I'll talk about that. The coolest place I think I've been to is this small village in Croatia. It's called Trogir, uh, and it's on an island. It's part of the Mediterranean Sea. The village is built in 13 BC by ancient wow. Greeks. Uh, and for me, it was like the personification of a perfect chill vacation spot. You know, you, you've got the most kind of incredible views uh, of the like azure blue water, Mediterranean sea water. Yeah. You've got the ancient architecture, uh, best ice cream in town. Uh, you, you can roam the whole village in an hour. Uh, Beautiful people, just you know, best restaurants. I mean, what, what else do you need? That's so, it. Uh, it, quite easy to get to. So, uh, we uh, I went to Split, uh, which is kind of the main entry point for Croatia, and then uh, took about an hour long uh, ferry uh, to get to Trogir. But highly Trogir. recommended. Probably one of the coolest places I've been to. Very cool. I know Croatia is kind of in vogue right now with a destin yeah. as a destination it was kind of not an obvious place to go but um actually you got some colleagues of mine that are croatian and they talk about uh um zagreb and uh a lot of the 
cities there quite often. I know a lot of billionaires and multimillionaires are have their yachts yep. on the Croatian. Yeah. Uh, yep. So, hey, it's uh, that's very fascinating. I did not expect you to say that. So I'm going to have to look that up. And who knows, you no. might have just boosted the tourism of that island a thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but Boovin, I really appreciate this. This is a, a tremendous amount. I, I'm just looking at this page here. I'm just blown away by the amount of value provided today. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to kind of share? Just tip top of the mind, tip of the tongue. Any final thoughts? No, oh, that's that's all. And um, just to thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely, um, Boovin is my pleasure. And uh, looking forward to uh, connecting again when you're back in town in Edmonton. Um, it's uh, no troll gear, but uh, it's uh, we're on the way up to becoming an international city. So looking okay. forward to seeing you again. I'll be there um, soon. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to another episode of In the Hopper. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really like the show, please share it on your social media or anyone who might be into business development or real estate or infrastructure. I'm sure they'd love to hear it too. Until next time, take care.